All right, once you've met someone, you can take a seat, but only when you met someone. Uh, I just want to say welcome, you guys. Welcome to um, church. Welcome to the exchange. We're so glad you guys are here tonight. Um, if you guys would like, would you please turn to 1 John chapter 5, 1 John chapter 5. Uh, we're going through the book of 1 John. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'd love to get you guys a Bible so you can follow along with us. But 1 John chapter 5, we are finally, and I don't want to say finally, but we are finally finishing the book of 1 John tonight. Uh, we'll be looking at verse 13 to 21, but 1 John chapter 5. Um, in case you are new, just want to say welcome. We're glad you're here. Uh, hopefully afterwards you can stop by, get some donuts, fill out a connect card. We'd love to just meet with you guys and just talk with you some more. Um, if you've been coming here, I know we announced this last week, but we want to share it. It is official as of this week, but we are we will be in Quiet Waters Elementary next Saturday, next Sunday morning, actually my dates, next Sunday morning at 1030. So it is official. Uh, we will not be here. Yeah, it's exciting. That's worth celebrating. Um, we've loved this place. So we've been meeting here since September. And just so you guys kind of know, we've been meeting at my house last, last year in July. We started doing prayer meetings. It turned into some prayer walks. It turned into uh, some having some Sunday kind of breakfast hangout at my place uh, to meeting here on Sunday nights. And uh, we're, this is our last one. We're finishing First John tonight. And this will be our last uh, Sunday here as well. So we'll be at Quiet Waters Elementary School. Uh, if you guys would, like, make note of that. Remember that. We don't have flyers, so we'll post on social media. But Quiet Waters Elementary School um, will be there at 10.30 a.m. will be service. That's based on Hillsboro and Powerline. So why by Quiet Waters Park. And so we'd love for you guys to be there. We met with the staff. We met with the faculty. They're excited to have us. Um, we're excited to be there. The, the, the principal's assistant, she's a believer. The custodian, the head custodian's a believer. And we'll be working with him a lot. So God just seems to be orchestrating this. It is so clear. Um, there's some families around, too, that we're excited just to be able to be on their school. And so God's been good. And so we're excited to share that with you guys. So that will be next Sunday at 1030. All right? So Quiet Waters, don't be here. We, won't, we will not be here next Sunday at 5 p.m. We'll be at Quiet Waters next Sunday at 1030. Just want to be overly clear about that. Um, so First John, chapter 5. Also, by the way, uh, if you're in a community group, we are taking the break. We're taking a break for the month of December, so we will not be meeting as groups. We want our leaders to get refreshed, enjoy your family, enjoy this time. Uh, we don't have a midweek service, so we do have community groups, and we have six of them. And uh, if that's something you'd like to be a part of, you can still sign up for those, but we'll restart those in January. So we'd love for you to be part of that, but just want to be really clear with that. Uh, my group meets at Starbucks over here in Deerfield. Some groups meet at Panera, all over the place, but we'd love for you guys to come be a part of that. Um, sign up now so we can kind of get organized and, and be ready for January. Cool? Sound good? All right. First John chapter 5. I'm kind of sad. Um, I don't know if you guys are bad with goodbyes. Isn't here just bad with goodbyes, uh, but it's hard for me to say goodbye. You know, when someone's leaving for a long time, we're kind of, I'm kind of petty. I'm like, I'll see you later, and I probably won't see them for like two years. I'll probably, you know, but you still say I'll see you later because you're just really bad at goodbyes. That's kind of how I feel about First John. Um, I've really enjoyed this book. This is a guy who's walked with Jesus for three years solid, but now, really, he's the last living disciple walked with Jesus for 60 years. The last living, breathing disciple of Jesus on earth, and many believe these were his last, this was his last letter, and these are his last written words. And so my ears kind of perk up when I hear that. You know, when, when you think about someone's last words, if you're with a family member or a loved one, and you're around like, their deathbed and they're saying those last words, you're going to remember those things. You're going to write those things down. You're going to take note of those things. Last words are very important. So whenever I come to like the close of an epistle or book, I kind of pay attention a little bit more. Um, even though we always should. But I kind of pay attention a little bit more. I kind of go, what is he saying? What does he want to end with? What is he trying to leave the church with? Here's a guy who knew Jesus for a very long time. And what are some of the things he's trying to say and communicate? What are some questions he's trying to answer? And I, and I think in these last, like, eight or nine verses, John's heart for the church is clearly seen. I think he answers some of life's major questions. And I'll, I'll throw a few of these questions up here. This is not the outline of this book for, or even today, but these are some questions John's going to answer really quick, just so you can see this. will be up here. Uh, John answers in verse 13 a big life question. Can I know I'm saved? Uh, in verse 14 15, he says, why, you know, we see, why do uh, so many prayers seem to go unanswered? Uh, in verse uh, 16 and 17, he answers the question, am I my brother's keeper? You know, that, that Cain once asked. Uh, verse 18 19, he answers the question, does God protect me from the enemy? In verse 20, can I really know God? Can I really know him? And can I serve God in, in something else? Fill in the blank. Can I serve God in anything else? Uh, John answers, I think, some big questions here. And the first couple are huge. Why do my prayers seem to go unanswered? How can I know I'm saved? And so I'm excited to just kind of go over these verses. I feel like John just crams in a lot of stuff. It was very hard to be like, here's the one theme. There's not really a one theme. 
there's this kind of like John's farewell, John's goodbye, John's thoughts, his closing thoughts. And so what we're going to look at it from this perspective is what does God want? What does God want for us? Not just from us, not, not even all, not from us, but what does he want for us? And so let's just read, look at 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. We'll read this and then we'll pray. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. John writes, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. I've written to you guys that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Now, this is the confidence that we have in Jesus that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked for him, asked of him. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin, which does not lead to death, he will ask, and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. You're like, I'm confused. Me too. We'll talk about that, though. Uh, Verse 17. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. Verse 18. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, does not continue to sin, does not keep sinning, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Amen? Verse 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. What a crazy ending. Um, let me just say this. I'm so thankful we're going through this book because if we weren't going through this book and it's just kind of topical, I'd probably avoid this section tonight. And I think it's, it's so necessary for, for us to go through scriptures like this. He deals with those who are in sin and what kind of sin. We'll talk about that. He deals with prayer. And who doesn't wrestle with prayer? He deals with us knowing God. There's some big topics here that I, I'm excited to explore. And it's, again, it's that father's heart towards his children in the sense his last letter, his last writings, and his very last words, I hope just can resonate in our hearts today. So let's just pray, and uh, then we'll go over this more in depth. Father, we thank you so much. We do just not want to just say that. We thank you, God. We'd be so lost. I would be so lost without your word. God, we thank you that you've given your son. We thank you that 2,000 years later, after John wrote this, we can still study this and apply it today, that it still is that living word. Lord, we look forward to what you want to do in our lives individually and then together as a church, God. We ask that you would mold and shape us together, that Jesus, where we lack, where we have strengths, God, you'd bring others into our lives, that we would be placed in other people's lives to offer just value for the gospel. God, let this be so much more than just a Sunday gathering where we just talk, but Lord, let it be a place where we can encounter you, where you can shape us and mold us and make us more like your son. So God, the things that we just read tonight, let them be written on our hearts. Let them just transform us. We just look to you, Jesus, in your wonderful name. Amen. Amen. All right, it's definitely that time of year. Uh, We're just a few weeks away from Christmas. Uh, This is the time where right now my kind of, I guess I'm more aware of, I only have a few weeks left to get gifts. Um, I know for the married men who are in this room, there might be a few, there might be a few married men in this room. Probably every husband feels like my wife is the hardest person in the world to shop for, but I genuinely believe my wife, who I love, is the hardest person in the world to shop for. If you were to go on her Amazon wish list right now, she has two things. She has a Roomba, which is like 300 and something dollars, and she has lipstick, which is $3. All right? That's, I asked her what she wants for Christmas. She says, go on my Amazon wish list. And I'm like, you have two things. And I'm like, if I get you the Roomba, she's going to be upset. Like, wow, thank you a lot for giving me a, a, a cleaning utensil, right? Like, that's not going to make her happy. And the other side is lipstick. So it's a lose-lose. I really don't know what to do. So pray for me. Like, I need other ideas. And I'm like, come on, what, else, what do you want? She's like, well, I told you about something in July. I'm like, you've got to give me a break. Like, I'm not going to remember that. There's no way I'm going to remember that. But it does make me laugh that this is the time of year. And, and I want us, I cannot wait. I cannot wait for December 24th. That is a Sunday. I cannot wait to get together and remember the fact that God entered human history. Like, I, I love Christmas for the fact that God entered our story. That the one who spoke this world into existence goes, let me place myself into the story itself. So I look forward to, to Christmas Eve for us as a church. But it's funny to me to think that on Christmas, we get gifts for the fact that Jesus was born, right? Like we're celebrating his birthday. We're like, let's get gifts to each other. Like we do that. And so this is the time where I, I like to stop and reflect. And it's true. It's like, well, God, what do you want? Like what does God really want? And not, not this. Not just what does God want from us. But what does God want for us? And what I see here is what I see what God wants for us. So we're going to kind of walk through the text in that light. What does God want for us? Look at verse 13. Here's the first thing. God wants you forever. So, so what does God want for us? 
God just simply wants you forever. And let that just kind of resonate in our hearts. God wants you and me forever. Look at verse 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. I mean, there's, there's different ways we've approached this, and really the point of 1 John is, John is saying, the whole point of this book is, here's how you can know you're saved or not saved. Here's how you can know you really walk with God or just pretend and fake and you, and you act like you walk with God. And John is using this book to kind of expose false Christians and affirm Christians who are kind of maybe weak in their faith. And I really appreciate this book for that reason, but I, I love this perspective. John's whole point is this, is God wants you to not just be saved, but to know you're saved. Yes, like we should not, like I hope everyone here believes in Jesus as passed from death to life, but do you know that? Are you confident in that? Do you have that security in that? This is eternal life. And again, we talked a little bit about this last week, but I feel like I needed to go back to verse 13, because eternal life is not something that is given one day. And eternal life is not just given the day you die, you don't get, just get eternal life, that you have eternal life now. That eternal life, when the Bible speaks of it, it's so much more in the fact of just quantity, like you live forever, but a quality of life. That's how it's written. So eternal life, again, it's not just for like Christians on their deathbed, like, well, if you believe right now, you can live. Like, we can have eternal life right now, meaning we can have a quality of life right now. That I think that Christians sometimes wait off and go, okay, on my deathbed, I'll get right with God. And it's like, well, you're going to miss out on so much more. You know, if, if, there are some people who say, uh, when you die, you just simply cease to exist. And they believe this, and they try to convince you and I that when you die, you just cease to exist. And I'm like, are you confident of that? And they're like, no, but just believe it. Here's the thing. Even, even if you just die and cease to exist, can I tell you right now, walking with Jesus is still worth it. Like, when you still walk with Jesus, he still makes me a better husband, a better father, a better person, a better friend. I don't believe by any means you die, you just cease to exist. But I'm saying, even if, even if, if that was the outcome, I'd say, but still walking with Jesus today is still so much better than not. Like, it's, it's still worth walking with Jesus. Because my eternity, not just my eternity, but my day-to-day life is still changed. See, this is eternal life. He goes, I want you to know that you have it. See, again, eternal life for us in a church, and I think I fell for this as a little kid, is eternal life to me was just heaven. Eternal life meant I had, I could eat whatever I wanted, and I could probably fly around, and it was like really happy, and I could be in shape whenever I want. I would never get hurt. Like, that was eternal life to me. And if we could get away from eternal life being a place and eternal life being a person, I think it will completely change how we live. Again, it's not so much where you are, but who you're with, Right? Like, we could be in paradise. You could be on, in the best place in the world, but with miserable people, you're probably going to be miserable. Like, I don't know if you've ever been on a trip with people who just complain. You're like, oh, my gosh, I'm in paradise, and I hate this place. Like, it's weird all that. But you, for us, the whole point, and I love, and I've shared this quote before, but this Samuel Rutherford, he said, if I, were go to, if I were to go to heaven and Jesus was not there, that would be hell to me. And if I were to go to hell and Jesus was there, that would be heaven to me. Because the point is, it's not so much I just want to walk on the streets of gold and, and eat whatever I want. The point is, I just want to be with Jesus. The point is that he is eternal life. That Jesus is not just someone who offers us eternal life, but he himself is eternal life. Like, yes, we get heaven. You know, I love uh, Randy Alcorn wrote a book called Heaven, and he, he put this little phrase together. He says, we are created for two things. We're created for a place and a person. Heaven is the place and Jesus is the person. And, and what if we could actually believe that is so much more about the person than even the place? Yeah, that we could actually know we have eternal life. That we would not just enjoy Jesus when we die, but we can enjoy Jesus today. And this is what he says, I, want, I write this to those who believe, who commit their trust in, who, who give everything to this. And I'd say, church, if you still haven't yet believed, not just had theoretic, like theoretical knowledge of Jesus, but fully believed, fully put your, your, your trust and your faith in the person of Jesus, that though he slay me, I will trust him. That though everything good in my life is taken away from me, I still have everything if I have Christ. You know, there's a book that was written, and I, I just love the title, and some of you might know right away who I'm going to talk about, but there's a book that was written, just Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and it's so true. Jesus plus nothing, plus nothing else equals everything still. And do we believe that? Is my heart content in that? Am I content that if everything was stripped away, if, if I have Jesus, I still have everything? And this is eternal life. And, and that's one of the things I think I want us to hear once in a while is, what does God want? God's like, I just want you. I just want you forever. Why did he die? Like, why did God die? Because he simply wanted you. Isn't that mind-blowing? That God's like, I love you so much, I will be the one that dies. Even though you've broken the covenant, even though you've sinned, I'm going to die on behalf of you. And the thing I think we want to see the most in this, this season, this sense, like, what does God want? It's like simply like, just you. Not something great you can do for God, but God's like, I just want you. If you can give me yourself, I, that's, like, that's all I want. We'll keep going. Number two, look at verse 14. Uh, God wants us to pray intentionally. What does God want? Look at verse 14. God wants us to pray 
intentionally. Look at verse 14. Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that, he ha- that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. All right, let's talk about this, because this can be one of those verses like, all right, are you saying whatever I ask for, I get? So let's just talk about this for a second. What does God want from us? God is, he just wants us to be intentional with our prayer. And I'll say this. First of all, God just wants us to pray. God just wants to spend time with us. God just wants you to talk to him. Before you keep going, just spend time with God. Talk with God. It's crazy. There's some people in this world that's like, man, if I could just have half an hour with that person, if I could just have an hour with that person, if you're a celebrity hero or a person, a business person you looked up to, whatever, whoever it is you admired, if they were to give you like half a day, like the this per, number one person you could ever spend time with, if they were to give you half a day, you would do whatever you could to clear your schedule and make sure you could meet with that person. And yet here's God of the universe who's so much more important than any celebrity, any person, and he's like, I have time for you. It's crazy. There's one person I think who shouldn't have time for me. It's the most important person, and yet the most important person has time for us. God's like, I want to hear from you. I just want to spend time with you. Now, but let's look at this. What does this mean? Whatever we ask according to his will, he hears us. So does, it, does that mean we just get whatever we pray for? How does that work? So let me just break this down with you guys really quick. Um, when I was a child, maybe you have this mindset, I thought prayer was for me to kind of get my way in heaven. Like, I pray to God so God will do this for me. And things began to really change when you look at prayers. Not so much how can I get my will done in heaven, but how can God get his will done on earth? Like, how do we pray in a way where I don't go to God and go, God, can you do this for me? But God, what is it you want me to do on earth? Like, we're told to pray. We're told to pray for your will to be done. You see, when we pray, what really happens is we kind of align our heart with God and we see the things that God is burdened for, the things that God loves, the things that God hates. And our hearts, we start to begin to pray for those things. See, prayer is not so much about me getting my will done in heaven, but God getting his will done on earth. And that changes how I pray. The things I pray for, I'm so, guys, if even yourself, if you had to look back 15 years, 5 years, 10 years, aren't you so thankful for the prayers that God did not answer? Like, there's so many prayers I've prayed and go, God, thank you so much for not answering that. I don't know who I'd be with, where I'd be, what I'd be doing, but it wouldn't be this day. I'm so thankful. God says, you know what? I love you. I don't hear that one. That wasn't according to my will. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And isn't that a beautiful thing to know? That if we ask anything according to his will, he's like, I hear that. I receive that. That is such a life-freeing thing. You know, a guy named George Mueller, he was a guy who, in England, he, he started some orphanages, and you can do some studies. Powerful guy, powerful testimony. Probably the best quote I've read on prayer. He says this, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It is laying hold of God's willingness. All right, let's say that again. Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It's laying hold of God's willingness. Sometimes we can view prayers like, well, I really got to convince God that I need this. When in reality, it's laying hold of God's willingness. Like God's like, I want to do this. This is the end, but prayer is the means to the end. I want you to think that God created the end and the means to the end. So God's like, I want to give you this, but you have not because you ask not. Right? Is that not true? God's like, I want to do this, but I want you to participate in this. I don't want it to just be me doing this, and I, like, I want to involve you in the process. Prayer is a way for us to get involved in the process. Prayer is a way for us to kind of get the heart of God, and God's like, I want to do this with you. I don't want to just do this for you. I want you to be part of this with me. Again, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It is laying hold of God's willingness. That's what prayer is. I like how, how a guy named Warren Wearsby, he, he wrote it this way and said it really well. He said, God not only ordains the end, but he also ordains the means to the end, prayer. Think about that. If God says you have not because you ask not, what is he saying? Ask. God is saying, I've ordained the end, but I want you to participate. I've ordained the means to the end. Because we can get weird with this. We can go, well, would, would God at least have done it even if I didn't pray? It's almost like, don't even ask that, just pray. Like, we go, well, God, would he have helped those people if no one prayed for that? It's like, it doesn't really matter. He just asked you to be involved in that. Again, the guy, George Mueller, the guy who, who gave that quote, I mean, he was known, he, he ran orphanages. He was known for having all these orphans, houses filled with orphans. And he would, they'd have no food, no milk, nothing. And he'd pray. He'd pray God bring bread and bring milk. And a milk truck would break in front of his house and a bread truck would break in front of his house. He's like, oh, we have milk and bread today. Like these are legitimate stories of him going, God, we don't have food. We ask that you bring food. And a guy would go, my, my truck broke outside your orphanage. My food's going to go bad. Do you want it? It's like, yes, God, thank you. Like he has those stories. It's so powerful. My point is the Bible is littered with stories of men and women who have answered prayer. And yet for some reason we still struggle with the idea that does God hear me when I pray? You know, the Bible, again, it's littered with stories of men and women who pray and God shows up and answers. 
I mean, even think of your own life. Think of recent prayer. Think of prayers that God has not answered because he, he knows what's best. Think of prayers he has answered. You know, I'm, I'm looking at this. You guys, when we started in July praying, we were like, I was, there's so many fears. It's like, God, and he felt weird. You know, I don't know if you ever felt weird for asking God for something. Like, God, can you just get us like a trailer, maybe, please? Like, you know, and God's like, here's a truck. You know, it's so cool. God just goes way above and beyond. You must feel like, is this good? Like, God, give us, help us be able to meet the needs of the area. God, bring people who want to serve and really bring the gospel out to this area. You know, this is a heavily, and you guys might know, maybe not, but like, this is a heavily, you know, Catholic community. We want the gospel to go out. This is a community where people are far from God. We're not saying that they don't have the gospel. We're saying that we know that the gospel, that Jesus Christ and him crucified and glorified, and we know that this message will change lives. We're praying, God, bring people who are passionate about this. Bring people who don't just want to watch. Bring people who want to be active. And it's cool to see what the Lord is doing. And you go, what if, what if it's not because of how creative we've been? What if it's because he's just simply answering prayers? What if we'd attribute it not to us, but to what God has been doing? You see, I want to look at prayer as God's like, here's my will. But the means to my will is still my will. So here's my will. Here's what I want to do in South Florida. But you still have to pray. You still have to ask. You still have to be a part of this with me. I'm not just going to do it. I'm going to involve you in the process. What a good God to do that. Because we get to experience the miracles. We, can, we get to experience God showing up in really unique ways. But we have to pray. And just practical application is tonight, we are going to end. We'll have worship going on, but we're going to pray. Like, we are going to pray. We're going to turn this into a, a place of a prayer. And we have to. Because we're moving next week, and by no means do I want to do this in my strength or our wisdom, because that's very little. I want to do this from God just leading us and guiding us. And, I, and I'm just saying, when I've read this today, and I've been, or this week, and just been meditating on it, like, God's been really trying to change my heart and my perspective of prayer, of how do I come to him. Can I tell you, the more I spend time with God, the, there's more prayers I don't pray. The more I get to know God, the more I'm like, I'm not going to ask for that. Because God, that's really not, that's my will, not your will. That's something I selfishly want, and not what you want. I'd say this, there's some things we just, we just need to pray for. There's some things we probably just don't need to pray for because we go, God, I have your word. You already told me the answer. Like, God, I really want to be with that unbeliever. And God's like, no, I already gave you that answer. Like, God, I really want to. Just, like, there's certain things we just don't have to pray for because God's already given us his word on that. But there's certain things God is saying, no, listen, I want to pour out my spirit. I want to heal communities. I want people to know me. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he might send out labors into the harvest. But like, God, why aren't there labors? He's like, well, why aren't you praying? Like, what if that's the reason? We're told to do this, and so this is not so much like this is some spiritual uh, self-hypnosis to try to convince ourselves prayer works. This is actually a command given by God where we see it actually does change things. And so we pray not because even we have to, but because we get to join God in this work, work of reaching lost people. Amen? I mean, that is the point of this. That is the point of why we get together. We do want to read. We do want to study. We do want to sing, but we want to see God move and work through the church, and God will do that. God, we will pray to the Lord of the harvest, and he will send out labors into harvest. As we pray for someone else, watch God send you. That's just what he does. He answers prayers so uniquely that way. And it's such a beautiful thing and such a fun thing to watch. It's crazy to think that Jesus also had to pray. It's crazy to me when I read the Bible and Jesus woke up early in the morning or he stayed up all night in prayer. The fact that Jesus, God's son, God in the flesh, still had to seek God and call upon God in his humanity. The fact that in his humanity, he still had to say, God, I can't do this without your spirit. It's crazy to think that Jesus said, Lord, let this cup of suffering pass before me, but not my will, your will be done. There's things Jesus prayed for, and he did pray ultimately for God's will. But he wanted the cup to pass from him, and that didn't happen. Because he ultimately prayed for God's will to be done. And there are certain prayer requests that were denied in a sense, because ultimately God's will is way better than our will. Because if that cup of suffering, if it was passed before him, where would you and I be today? And there's so many things. God is so much more sovereign and so much smarter than I am, where I try to think, this might be best for me, and God's like, no. There have been so many places in this process we've sought and knocked on doors for, and God's like, I have you here. God's brought us, I, I really do believe God has brought us to quiet waters not just to rent from them. I think there's something that needs to happen in that area. I believe there's a gospel transformation that needs to happen in that area, and it's not going to happen without the church. And that's why God plants churches. That's why God does these things. And again, it begins and ends with prayer. This is not our last resort. This is our first resort. We don't pray because we, oh, we don't know what to do. Let's pray. We pray because that's all we know what to do. We don't know how to do anything else other than say, God, you show up. Amen? We really do want this to be a community that is built on prayer, not just talks about prayer. So we will stop our service if we need to and say, hey, let's pray, because we don't want to do this without God. So we're going to do that today. All right, keep going. What else does God want? Number three, God wants us to be committed to killing sin. God wants us to be committed to killing sin. Look at verse uh, 16. He writes, if anyone sees his brother sinning a sin, which does not lead to death, he will ask, he will pray, 
and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that. He should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin. All right, let's just slow down, because you might be thinking, what? Like, could you imagine this? Could you imagine, like, hey, I just want you to know I'm no longer praying for you because you're just past the point of prayer. Like, what is John saying here? And what's happening? Like, hey, dude, I love you, but I'm just not praying for you anymore. Okay, there is something John is saying, and and I I do want to say this. I believe it's incredibly serious. Uh, as if you read any scholars on this topic, if you read anybody on this topic, they say it this way. They go, it's almost like here's a, bo- a, a, bo- a box that is locked, and we've lost the keys to it. Um, like we know that there's, this is saying something. There's a sin leading to death. The question that everyone asks is, what is the sin leading to death that we should no longer pray for? Like what is that? What is the sin leading to death that we should no longer pray for? And, and before we talk about that, before we're like, what is that? Because I don't know, but I'm going to show you what I think. Um, before we talk about that, there's something I do want to point out. What is sin? Like, what is sin? What is this idea of sin? Let me just say this. Sin is inherent. It's within us. Sin is in me. I have, in a sense, Adam, my, our first father. I have his nature passed down. We all have sin within us. Uh, I sin because I'm a sinner. I'm not a sinner because I sin. I sin because I'm a sinner. I sin because that's just in me. I'm good at it. Like, that, I'm wired to sin. All right? And then the other idea is I choosefully, I willfully sin. There are times that we make decisions. We can't just say, oh, it's Adam's fault. I have the, the problem of sin. Like, we do sin. We choose things that are against God all the time. And the Bible talks about sin in a couple different ways, that there's the sin of commission and the sin of omission. The sin of commission, the sin of omission. A simple way to remember this is commission, the sin that you commit, that you willfully commit, that you say, I know I should not do this. I'm still going to do this. I'm still going to go against God's will. The sin of commission, I'm committing it. The sin of omission is, wow, I really know I should help this person right now, but I'm not. I'm going to withhold that. I didn't offensively do anything wrong, but kind of laying aside and kind of doing nothing. By doing nothing, I omit, I, the sin of omission, I still committed sin, but in kind of a, in, a, in a relaxed sort of a way. And so this idea of sin just plagues all of us. You know, all of us deal with sin in so many different ways. And the more we go and grow in Christ, it's not like the more you see, I don't sin anymore. You just notice all of your sin in a different way. You know, it's almost like when you first get saved, you're like, I don't do these big things anymore. I stopped doing these three big things. I'm, hey, made, I'm done. And God's like, no, you're not done. Like, there's so many things that God is trying to work on us. There's so many little things. Like, even the good things, I, I'm repenting probably more of good things I do than bad things. You know what I mean? Like, I do good things, and I go, God, that was just a wicked heart, wicked motive, wicked mindset. That was, for, that was for me, not you, Jesus. Like, I have to repent of good things. I don't know if you've repented of good things recently. But you'll, repent, you'll find yourself repenting of a lot of things the more you grow in Christ. Because you realize, I'm still bro- I still need Jesus today. I never graduate from the gospel. It's never like, well, Jesus saves really bad people. Like, no, can I just even point this out? We're not, here to, we're not here to morally transform people. We are here to experience God who will supernaturally transform people. We're not trying to make evil men a little bit better. We're trying to make evil men alive. We're not trying to make, you're really bad, you should get better. We're saying, you're, you should die in your sins and be made alive in Christ. That's what we're saying. We're saying, we want to be dead so we can be raised alive with Christ. We want to walk in a newness of life, not just try to say, oh, let's add a little bit of goodness here, add a little bit of you know, hospitality here. Now you're better. Like, no, that'll do nothing. I, I, need to be, I need to be crucified with Christ and let Josiah Graves be dead and let Christ live in me in the life that I now live. I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. That's where we're at. That's what we're trying to communicate. And I want you to hear John's heart. John is saying this. We know this. John is saying, hey, if you see your brother in sin, and it's not leading to death, pray for him. So let's just focus on that before we try to get, fo- if we see a brother and sister in him, and I, I want to point, circle the word sees, will you? Will you look at verse 16? If anyone sees, circle that word sees, please, like cir- not, just circle the word. If you personally see someone in sin, and not if you heard someone, not if I heard the grapevine, oh, I heard this person I saw on social media, but like, did you see? Because I think sometimes we kind of, and again, h- how do we approach that when we see someone in sin? First hand, I see someone in sin. When you see someone in sin, and so John has this process, he goes, if it's sin not leading to death, pray for that person and watch God deliver them. So first thing I want to point out is God will deliver people who are in sin. And I, I wonder if there's people right now in sin that would be delivered from if the church started praying for them. Like, God, they're in sin. I love them. You love them more. Get them out of that sin. Get them out of that lifestyle. God's like, he will hear that. But he said there is sin leading to death, and God will not hear that. There's no point even praying for that. So what is that? That's like what's haunting everyone right now. Okay, so I'm going to give you like the eight different ideas of what it could be. All right, you guys, let's rush through this um, and kind of show you where I'm leading. A couple little things, because honestly, this is a tough verse. And, and if you look at 2,000 years later, 
there is most likely this common knowledge of sin leading to death that everyone's like, yeah, it's a sin leading to death. There's probably common knowledge of that that we just don't have today. But there's kind of some speculation around that, so I'll just throw some out. Um, if you do kind of go down that Catholic route, they'll say there's mortal and venial sins. There's really big sins and really small sins. And for the really big sins, don't pray for it. I, I just don't see that scripturally. I don't, I don't think it's that first one. But some will say, this is like adultery or murder. You don't pray for that person. I just don't see that. That's why I, I don't see that at all. But we'll keep going. Uh, some say this is intentional sin versus unintentional sin. So a Christian who's born again, but they're still intentionally sinning. So like, don't pray for that person. Again, I just don't see evidence for that. I don't see evidence scripturally for someone who's intentionally saying, like, well, that person's intentionally doing it, so therefore don't. We'll keep going. Number three, some say that this means apostasy. Like, if you see your brother committing a sin leading to death, so they are now apostate. They are now someone who's left the faith. Now, it kind of depends on your view of salvation. I, if someone leaves the faith, in my perspective, according to 1 John 2, we, we went over this, if someone leaves the faith, they never really had it to begin with. It, it shows they're never really born again. So I don't think that's a clear interpretation either. Uh, keep going, though. Others say that this is referring to blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That if someone commits this blasphemy against God's Spirit, they should no longer pray for this person. And what is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? And you have guys who say, well, it simply means attributing Jesus' work to, to Satan or demons. And I think that's, very, that's a very good interpretation. Some say, no, it just means that you've rejected the work of the Holy Spirit until the day you die. I just don't know if those even make sense if you line up. I, I, again, as long as you have breath in your lungs, you can repent. As long as you're alive, you can say, God, I need you. So I don't, I don't know how that lines up like, oh, they just committed a lot. I don't know if that's something that they could see recognizable. So I don't know if that fits as well. Um, some say it's an ongoing sin that's unrepentant. Um, but again, would that be a true Christian? So it's an ongoing sin. I'm a Christian. I'm sinning purposely. I'm not repenting. So they're saying that if you're a Christian and you're sinning, you're not repenting, don't pray for them. I don't see that as a good interpretation according to other pastors. Here's another one. So then you're like, stop overwhelming me, but I am. Um, some say this is kind of like a physical death and a spiritual death. So, for example, uh, some say that, you know how like when you're in the army, you get honorably or dishonorably discharged? This idea is some will say, as a Christian, here's what this means. Someone's sinning, and they're ruining the name of Jesus. They're ruining the gospel. And God, in his love and grace, will dishonorably discharge them, not send them to hell, but say, you know what, your life needs to end. So they cannot ruin my name and ruin the gospel. And so, for example, Ananias and Sapphira, right? You read the book of Acts. They go, look at, we sold all of our land, all of our stuff, and we're bringing all of the money before the church. And the apostles are like, you're claiming this is all of the money. It's part of the money. Therefore, you and your money die, and they die, right? Okay, so you remember that, that verse? That was New Testament. So you're like, what about Old Testament? This is grace. That was New Testament, okay? Uh, they, they're blaspheming the gospel. They're blaspheming the name of Jesus, and, and their life came to an end. Also, 1 Corinthians 11. If you guys remember, they're, they were literally coming to church in a sense, going, let's, it's communion, let's, and they wouldn't just have like a cracker, like they would have a feast, a festival, to remember the broken body of our Lord and the blood of our Lord, and they'd, they'd make it a festival, and I love that, because communion should be more joyous, it's not always, it's not to be sad, we're celebrating the fact that Christ gave us victory over sin and death, and so they'd celebrate it, but eventually they started getting drunk off it, and eventually the, the celebration turned into not just really just a mockery of Jesus and the gospel, and a mockery of the blood and his body. And so according to 1 Corinthians 11, it, it appears that there were some who were dying from that, as if God was ending their life in that way. So some say the sin leading to death is, in a sense, that. It's saying you're sinning in a way where God's going to go, you know what, you're now like, not that I'm sending you to hell, but you need to end your life now. Uh, not you. I'm going to take your life now before this can continue on. And I, I don't know. I don't know if that is the interpretation, but it's, God, it's almost God saying before you keep ruining the name of the gospel, we're going to stop it. That's one interpretation. Seven, um, Maybe a group of who walked away from Christianity uh, and started a cult or teaching, because that's what John's dealing with, right? John's writing to a group of people that were once following Jesus and then saying, well, Jesus never physically rose again from the grave. He just spiritually rose from the grave. And John's saying, that's a cult. That's heresy. That's evil. That's wickedness. Don't pray for that person. Might be. We could go on and on. All right? I don't want to keep doing But there's so many different views of what this sin leading to death is. And, and I don't know where I land on that. I personally don't say, I land like, here's what it means. It could be that Ananias and Sapphira, that 1 Corinthians 11, like, it could be that, that God in his love and grace said, okay, it's not that you're going to hell, but that I'm going to take your life this day, so don't keep making a mock. It could be that. I don't know. We should never come to that conclusion when a Christian dies. I don't think we should ever pretend we're God and we know, like, well, that's God just, like, no. I, I don't know. Again, that could be a, another false interpretation. Here's what I'm saying, though. Can we just all agree on this? Um, John speaks very serious about sin. Can we agree about that? Can we agree that John says don't play around with sin? The whole point of 1 John is he says, I'm writing this so you will not continue to sin. And I think in the church in some ways we're kind of like, 
well, you know, there's sins and then there's sin. It's like, no. All sin is against God. All sin is glorified God. Like, we got to talk about sin. Like, we shouldn't be tolerant towards sin. We just say, I love you so much. I don't want to see that lifestyle continue in you. I love you so much. I'm going to say some hard things to you right now so you don't find yourself in a terrible spot 20 years down the road. You see, John is basically heavy on sin because I think the more we hate sin, the more we love Jesus. The more we realize God died for that, that disgusting heart, attitude, jealousy, covetousness, pride, whatever. God died for that. Why would I embrace that or love that or coddle that or protect that or defend that? No, don't sp- speak of my sin. I love my sin. And like we try to like defend our sin and God's like, just give it up. Like hate it. Kill it. End it. If you've been born in God, look at verse 18. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin. And we'll look at that more. But this idea is that you, you, just can't, you don't want anything to do with it. God, I love you so much. This is not of you, so I don't want to be of it. Because, God, this is against you, I'm against it. And that is the heartbeat that John is trying to produce in us. So I'd say this. And it's not to make us a holier than that. I love this, like, kind of, this, kind of uh, this, this tension in 1 John. It's basically saying don't continue to live in sin. You don't have to continue to live in sin. But when you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Like, 1 John is that book that's like, please be freed from sin. But please know that you have Jesus still who's going to continually cleanse you from your sin as you walk in the light, as he's in the light. So I I so appreciate 1 John because it's pressing us on to holiness but not making us legalistic. It's pressing us on to holiness but remembering the grace and goodness of God in the same time. Like, John speaks out of both sides, and I so value that. He's like, I'm not going to put up with sin. I'm not going to put up with sin, but when you do sin, you have, you have grace with Jesus. But don't continue to sin. Like, I love that heart. Like, that's just the heart of, I, I want to walk you through this. And God is faithful. God knows our frame. Remember 1 John 3? God knows our heart. When our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. And I think John just kind of sharing those last thoughts again with them. Number four, we'll keep going. Verse 18, number four, God wants to change you. God wants to change me. Look at verse 18. We know that whoever's born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. All right, let me just say this. When you really encounter Jesus, the, the fundamental core of who you are completely changes. So who's been born of God does not sin. Remember, it's written that present progressive tense. You will do not continue to sin. Because you might read this, like I read this and go, but Jesus, I still sin. So am I not born of God? Of course, that's not the point. The point is you don't sin the same way. The point is when you do sin, you respond to it differently. The point is when you and I sin, you don't look at it the same way you wouldn't sin. Like, oh, well, I sinned, whatever. You kind of are heartbroken over it. You go, God, forgive me. Take this away from me. There's a completely different approach and response to sin. Does not continue to live in their sin is literally how verse 18 is written. You do not continue to keep on sinning. And so I'm saying this because there's this, again, there's a freedom in this too. It's not saying that you're going to be sinless and perfect. It's saying that he's sinless and perfect, and we're trying to become more and more like him. But let me just point this out, guys. Here, here's, here's the other side. Here's the other truth to this. If someone says, guys, I've been radically born again. Jesus Christ has saved me in a week and months, and years go by, and nothing's different about the person. It's been years, and the gospel is like, no, the gospel's transformed me. And you're going, but how? Where? You're not loving. You're not great. You're not patient. You're not kind. You're not self-controlled. Like, there's no fruit of the Spirit. Just because you say, I've met Jesus, doesn't mean you met Jesus. And that not that the point of 1 John? The point of 1 John is to say, just because you might know his name and know the lingo, grew up in the church or been around the church, don't kid yourself into thinking that you've been born again. So there's a side to it where we got to embrace that. Like, we, there still has to be a point in time where you are born again. And again, remember that seed we talked about? The Word of God is like a seed. It might start small, and it might sprout out over a couple weeks or months, and eventually a small acorn can turn to a giant oak tree. Like, we get it, but it takes a lot of time. So we can't also be critical to go, ah, oh, there's no change in you. You're not born again. We can't be critical either. We have to look at it as a seed as well and go, okay, it will take time. You follow me? Like, it will take time, but there still will be change. It will take time, but there still will be change. Okay, so that has to let it sink, that has to sink into our hearts. It does not continue to sin. There will be change. And if you find yourself over and over again in that place, just go, God, I would say as 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says, examine yourselves, test yourselves whether or not you're in the faith. There's something healthy and good about that. And that, again, that is the f- point of 1 John. But I want to point out something very beautiful. In verse 18, it says, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. If, in a different translation, in better translations, it says, keeps him. The idea is, you've been born of God, God keeps you. And I love, even in the Greek, it's right away where it's not that you keep yourself from the wicked one, but God's keeping you from the wicked one. That there's a promise from God that he goes, I keep you. Didn't Jesus pray this? We'll throw the verse up, but it's John 17, uh, 15. Jesus prayed. It's not up. Okay, John 17, 15. Jesus prayed, 
uh, there we go. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. I mean, listen, didn't Jesus say this? That he is like, I would keep you from the evil one. This idea in verse 19, where in verse 18, where it says the enemy does not touch him, does not latch on to him, does not give himself to. When someone's like, oh, that's a believer, they're born again and they're, they're possessed by a demon or something, it's like, no, that's just not the case. It can't be the case. It does not touch him. The, the evil one has no authority over you. Whom the sun sets free is free indeed. It's not like, oh, there's a little bit of room there. It's like, no, you're completely free. And there's this, there's this victory in that way. Jesus says, I prayed for you, Peter. The enemies asked for you by name, but I prayed for you. And when, when you fail, when you fall, like be reunited again with your brothers. There's something beautiful about that. It's like, there is, it's like, even though the enemy can get to us, we will fail, we will fall, Jesus is praying for us. And there's this side where we can be reunited with him. And in verse 19, and this is an interesting phrase, he says, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. I want to just say something really quick. This verse sounds like this. We are of God, we are holy, the world is bad. That's not the case. It's not saying we are of God, so we are good. Everyone else is wicked and evil. It's saying, no, we are of God. We are children of God. Because of being a child of God, we now have a new identity. And I know we've talked about this before, but please listen really quick in case you're zoning out for a second. Just listen to this. This, this idea of being a child of God is so incredibly beautiful. In 2017 in America, we find in our identity by our individualism. I want to make a name for, my, I want to make a name for myself. I want to define my own path. But in reality, when you look at scriptures and you look at even how they lived, it was who your father was was who you were. Who your mother was was who you were. Your family, in a sense, gave you that identity. And I love this while John is using it. He goes, but we are of God. You and your lifestyle and what you've done, that does not define you. We are, child of, we are of God. My father is rich, so therefore I'm rich. My father is good, and therefore I'm good because of what he's done for me. It's like this is that new identity we have as a, a child of God. And he says the other world is they just lie under the sway of the evil one. Like that they still can still be a child of God. They can still be a part of this. The point is God wants you. The point is God wants to change you. God loves you so much. He says, come to me as you are, but he loves you so much that he will change you in the process. Amen? That's what John is saying. And lastly, look at number five. God wants us to know Jesus. Look at this. God wants us to know Jesus. Verse 20. John writes, and we know. How many times have we seen that word know? I don't know. 50 times. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Amen? <laughs> so powerful. Listen, here, here's the idea. Um, if you ever have a friend who comes to you and says, listen, I found the, the best new artist. I mean, her voice is insane. I mean, you will hear her, and it will, like, inspire you to change the world. This person's, and you're like, okay. You hear that, and you go, I'm sure they're good. They told me they're good. I've heard, I'm sure they're good. But then when you go in, in person and see them live, and you're like, they sweep you off their feet, like, oh my gosh, it's the greatest voice in the world. And you go back and tell everyone. There's something about hearing someone is good, and there's something about experiencing someone is good. There's something about hearing. I can tell you right now, God is good. And you're like, okay, sure he is. But there's something about you experiencing and tasting and seeing yourself in the Lord is good. Like, I can t- talk all day about how God is good, but that, doesn't, that won't do a thing to you. You have to have an understanding. You have to come to know Jesus Christ. You have to taste and see personally yourself that he is good. Again, someone can tell you all those things in the world, but you have to experience that. And I love how Proverbs says it. Proverbs is like, search this out, like find treasure in a, ma- in a mountain or mine. Proverbs says, you're not going to get this treasure by going, oh, there's treasure in that mountain. I'll just stare at the mountain. Like, no, you have to dig into the mountain. You have to kind of get your hands dirty, and it'll take work, and you'll sweat, and there'll be tears and blood. But when you find it, and you get into the mountain, you go, oh my gosh, there's priceless treasure in this mountain. And that is, is that not God? Is that not his word? When I can say, hey, read the Bible, and you're like, okay, there's a big mountain there. The Bible, it's a really big mountain. I'm sure there's treasure in there somewhere. But like, you have to dig into it. You have to explore it. You have to get into it, and you have to taste and see yourself, oh my gosh, Jesus is everything he said he was. I haven't just heard, but I have seen, I've tasted and seen that he is good. There's something about that. And John is like, I'm writing this so you can know this. And then here's what's interesting to me. Verse 21 is such a unique way to end a book. He says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. And it almost feels random. It almost feels like grandpa, like, like forgot what he was saying. He was like, uh, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Like, it's like, what is he saying? But if you like read the context and you look at it, it so fits. He says, I want to change you. I want, I want you. I want to change everything about you, your whole core, everything about you. I want to make you dead and make you alive. I want to take you who are dead and make you alive. And he says, and don't go back to what I saved you from. I've saved you from these things. Don't go back to them. Keep yourself. And I, and I think this is interesting when you do study this. 
we're told in verse 18 as we studied it that Jesus keeps us from the evil one, but we're, t- we're told the burden's on us now to keep ourselves from idols. I want you to hear this, that God says, I keep you from the evil one, but you need to do something as well. There is this, there is that, again, that tension in Scripture. Okay, remember the Bible says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, but it's God who works in you. So God has put something in you, now you have to work it out. God has put something good, like some faith, love, hope. God has put these things in you, but you have to work it out. The point for us is God's like, I've kept you from the evil one, now you need to keep yourselves from idols. And in a culture where we blame everyone and we go, it's their fault, it's my parents' fault, it's society's fault. In a culture that blames everything and everyone, God's like, you need to take ownership of this. You need to keep yourself from idols. And let's just, again, let's just think about this, by the way, because idols is such a weird word. It's such a Christianese word. It's such a, it's such a religious word. Idols is not like we go over to India and we see some shrines. We go, oh, they're idols. I can't believe they worship idols as bad people. It's like we worship idols. And if they were to come to our house and go, why do you have this giant man- mantle shrine with this giant 90-inch TV? Like, what is that? It's like, oh, that's our idol. You didn't know that? That's just how we worship it. We just have different ways of doing these things. It's interesting, though, if you do, like, just, if we, if we slow down and look at this, if we slow down and look at this and we simply go, what is an idol? And, and simply put, you guys know, an idol is anything that takes the place of God. Anything that takes the place of God. I want to, I want, we're made by him and for him. We're made to worship Jesus, know Jesus, love Jesus. And then something comes in and we put our attention, our focus on that. And so can I tell you guys, idols aren't bad things. Usually they're good things that become God things. There's something that God creates that is good, but now it's God to us. God creates sex that is good. That is a good thing God made, but now that's all we live for. God creates things in this world for us to enjoy. God creates work and success, but now it becomes power. Like, God creates really good things, and then we just pervert them in our heart and make them ultimate things. And that's when you see, go, okay, this is not just an idol of some far country somewhere. Like, this is here. It just takes a new shape. It takes a new form. It, It owns our hearts. And again, idols are interesting. They promise you things that only God can fulfill, right? Idols promise us things that only God can fulfill in my life. I will make you happy. I will give you value. I will satisfy you if you work for me, if you live for me. If you get this one day, then everything you've ever wanted will be satisfied. And idols have this weird thing of promising us things that only God can satisfy us. God will say, if you do this, give yourself to this, you'll be happy. And God's like, no, you were made by me and for me, and that's why you're still miserable, because you're serving, some, you're serving the creation rather than the creator. You're giving yourself to something other than me. You're made by me and for me. And some few questions I think that are just valuable to ask ourselves about idols, and we'll throw it up here just because it's good. When you think about idols, there's questions you should ask. Who do you love the most, or what do you love the most? Like, what do you live for? What do you get up for? What excites you? What is, like, the number one passion and let me just say this in Christianity, because you've got to be careful. God is supposed to be the master passion, and he's created other passions. Not everyone is called to vocational ministry, and by no means should, should everyone be Like, you don't see that in the scriptures. Everyone should have the master passion of knowing Jesus and making him known. That should be all of our master passion. But you can still be a plumber in the process. You can still be a CEO in the process. You can still be a school teacher in the process. And through that venue, you're trying to know God and make him known. It's not, okay, now quit your job and go work in the church. That's not that point. But who do you love and what do you love the most? Number two, who or what do you fear the most? What kind of fear do you, who, what, what kind of makes you go, but if I don't have this, then I lose my security. If I don't have this, then I'm not satisfied. Who or what do you fear the most? Because sometimes what you and I fear the most actually reveals what we worship. So if I fear losing my job, it's probably because I love my job. Because I, I, that's what I worship. That brings, my, that brings me an identity, a social status, and that's really what we're worshiping. If I fear losing my girlfriend, I fear losing my boyfriend. Why do you fear that? Because, well, that's my God. That's what I serve. That's what I love. And I don't want that to be taken from me. I love that. Don't do that. Well, you fear that because that's really what your heart is, is for and bent towards. Do you have a functional Savior? And the idea is you can say Jesus Savior, but you can turn to alcohol. Jesus, I know that you save me from my sins, but to get away from this problem, I'm going to go to serve. Like, we can turn to all sorts of things. I, for me, it's probably Trinity ice cream. Like, I just, we all turn to different things. Like, save me from this issue, my stress. Uh. But what do we turn to? Number four. Um, who or what do you make sacrifices for? Who or what do you make sacrifices for? So it's funny how we can our we'll clear so many. I will do. I will. I will climb Mount Everest to show you my love. And God's like, will you like serve me a little bit? And you're like, no. Like it's like who or what do we sacrifice for? What we will give to, what we'll surrender to, really reveals again what we're living for. And lastly, who or what do you give the most to? So do you give your time to God? Like, are we actually saying, when I wake up, God, I want to spend time with you. When I close the day, I want to spend time with you. God, you're not just an afterthought. You're my first thought. 
God, you're the one I'm going to give my life to in this way. That I want to get, again, I want to give everything I can to you. You give me skills and talents and abilities. Let me give to you. God, you've given me possessions and resources, money. I don't want to give money to God. I like, it's weird. Why do we have that? Because we love those things more than God. I really think God says, give it to me to just kind of show, like, for you my heart to go, yes, because I do trust you. I do love you more. I, I'm not afraid that if everything's taken away, I still have you. I still have everything. Again, John is just, this is so unique to me. He ends by simply saying, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Obviously, meaning this is going to flare up all the time. And, and maybe you've heard this quote. John Calvin says, our heart is like an idol factory, constantly producing new idols. As soon as I conquer one sin, it's like, well, I, now there's like a new sin. It looks prettier. Like, what is that? Like, as soon as we feel like this is done with, there's something new and it takes a new form. And that's honestly, the point of that is to take our eyes off of that and back onto Jesus. And I, I've shared, there's so many ways we could get into this, but I'll say this. The way to conquer idols is not by saying, idol fall, idol hate you, idol go away. The way of getting rid of those idols is looking to Jesus and watching those idols fall away. Here, here's why I'm saying this for us today. We're ending First John, we're done with this book. What's the point of studying this? If we're not loving Jesus more, if we're not loving others more, if we're not making him known, if we're not walking with him day by day, why, why are we going to start a new book of the Bible if we haven't even done this one? My point is, let's let this be in our hearts. Let this change us and mold us. And let's pray these things. Go, God, take what we've heard and let's live it out. God, here's, we're praying for your will to be done in South Florida as is in heaven. Like, we're praying for these things. My hope tonight is simply to do this. We're going to end right now. We're going to have a little bit of worship going on in the background. But I'm going to ask that we just pray. I'm going to ask that we actually believe the word of God that we pray that God would pour out his spirit. Can I, can I ask you guys to do this? A few thoughts, and you guys can take it how you want, but we're going to get into groups of three or four. Not everyone needs to pray. If you're uncomfortable with praying, just listen. But I'm going to say that we get into groups of three or four, and I'm going to ask that you guys during this worship time just pray. I say pray specifically for the teachers of the school. Pray for families who go to that school. Uh, pray for people to come to the gospel in this area. Pray for our relationship with that school. Pray for just dear We just pray for the city we're in right now. We pray for the city where you live. Let's just pray over that city, pray over that pe the people group there. Guys, be specific. Say, God, pour out your spirit on this area. Uh, God, would you provide in this way? Like, I would just ask that you pray specific prayers. I would say that we don't pray selfishly. But we pray, pray things we know that are in the word of God. We know that you want to save men. Save men. God, we know that you said to raise up laborers, raise up laborers into this heart. God, do what you said you will do. Like, let's just pray according to his will. He wants to save. He wants to heal. He wants to redeem. So let's pray for those things. So again, this is not just a time where you sit and like, oh, that was, I'm going to leave now. This is a time for to be the church where we actually now join God in his work, where we join God in his mission. So right now, I'm, I'm not going to pray. I'm going to say right now, get in a group of three or four, and you guys pray amongst each other. When worship's done, we'll have some closing thoughts. But go ahead and please just pray specifically over this area. And guys, if you see someone sitting by themselves, just find them and go pray with them. If someone's not praying, just find them. But let's pray.